Hello, this is Sean Hoagie, and I am founder and general partner of Starship Ventures. At Starship, we're looking for daring founders that will create the next giant leap for humankind. Occasionally, I'll post a podcast with some of the more interesting people I've encountered in the startup world. And for this first episode, I recorded a discussion on Clubhouse with David Holes in a room we titled Total Abundance. David is one of those rare luminaries that has the capacity to think centuries into the future while remaining cognizant of what is achievable in the near term. In this recording, David describes what human life beyond Earth might look like, and also discusses what other life could be waiting for us to discover in our own cosmic backyard. Welcome, David. Hello. Yes. If we can talk about space a little, I welcome that. Yeah. So before you popped in, I was just talking about how we're entering a space race 2.0 with Bezos stepping down from Amazon. Yeah. Um, it seems I'm one of many firms turning their attention to this. And there's a lot of talk about Mars, but maybe we could talk a bit about some of the other places in the solar system that could be good places to expand to, could be a bit easier and what, what that might look like. Yeah. I mean, I think broadly speaking, right, there's a lot of different reasons to go to space. It seems like Jeff Bezos when he talks about space, he talks about people living in giant space stations and space industries. And then Elon usually talks about Mars. There are other places, of course, you can go to. I, you know, one thing I like to talk about sometimes is thinking a little bit more about Venus. It's a bit of a newer idea. So, like, I, I don't know, I've been a space, I've been obsessed with space when I was, since I was young. And, you know, for most of that, most of those years, the idea of Venus is not a place to go. Mm-hmm. But I think in the last decade or so, there's been sort of some new that's been changing a little bit where we, People know now that, you know, there are a lot of issues with microgravity, but there's a lot of arguments to going to some places with more like Earth-like gravity. Venus has Earth gravity. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second thing that that's maybe more valuable than we thought. And then the second thing that people think about is that turns out that if you put like a balloon of Earth atmosphere, if you fill a balloon with Earth atmosphere, it'll float on Venus because the atmosphere is heavier uh, than our air. And then it just floats at around the same temperature in the atmosphere that Earth is. And there's relatively little wind up there, too. And so the idea is that Earth's atmosphere kind of floats to an altitude where it's actually relatively habitable on Venus. The issue is that Venus is kind of a terrible place on the ground, but there's somewhere between the ground and space where it's actually not so bad. It turns out that's roughly where Earth's atmosphere floats at. So there's these sort of newer ideas of if we produce or transit, you know, enough Earth's atmosphere to Venus and then basically just fill them, fill, fill giant, you know, balloons with them, then you can basically live inside those balloons and you have as much habitation space as you can inflate. And it just floats. So it would just be filling the balloons with our current gas makeup on Earth, and that, that would just float if you put it in a balloon on Venus? Yeah. So if you could make really giant hydrogen balloons, you know, you could live in them, right? But you can't really breathe hydrogen. But it turns out that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an Earth atmosphere, you know, nitrogen, oxygen on Venus floats like hydrogen here. It happens to float at the place that's particularly nice in temperature and wind speed. So you probably don't want to have them free-floating. You probably you might tether them or something. Tether it, yeah. But probably what you really want is you want you want to send something to Venus that can break the Venus atmosphere down into effectively Earth atmosphere and then probably take the extra hydrocarbons and build out balloons. So you kind of want something that like <laughs> makes balloons on Venus, which sounds both like kind of wonderfully crazy to me. So if you could just create a balloon factory on Venus, you basically can build entire habitats out of that. The interesting thing about Venus, too, is that you do have a lot of energy on Venus. Uh, you have mm-hmm. a magnetic field. So you don't have to worry about radiation, you don't have to worry about the gravity issues, and you don't have to worry about energy. So you have Earth gravity, you have like unlimited energy from the sort of the thermal 
elements of Venus. Venus is very hot at the ground and very cold in space. So using the temperature differentials and the wind speeds, there's a lot of ways to harvest energy from that. It's really easy to say like Venus sounds crazy, but also Mars is crazy too. The difference between Mars and Venus is like, okay, they're both completely inhospitable places. Mars has radiation, Venus not so much. Mars has um, less gravity, so that's both good and bad for different things. Venus mm-hmm. has the same gravity. You know, you have a lot more energy on Venus than on Mars. I think that's maybe something that's worth considering. You can't really use thermal. Solar solar doesn't work as well on, on Mars. And there's no geothermal. And there's no hydroelectric. And there's no wind power. A lot of people talk about just bringing nuclear power to Mars. But on Venus, you can just use thermal. And you kind of have unlimited power. So thermal power and solar is better because you're closer to the sun. And yeah. to live on Mars, we're going to have to fill habitats with our own atmosphere anyway. So if you were to essentially do the same thing on Venus, it, it would float. You put in balloons. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have to radiation shield it. Whereas on Mars, you theoretically do need to radiation shield it. There's like kind of issues there. Like you might end up actually living underground, which could be cool. None of these are insurmountable, but they're like, there's, they're, they say they both... Both places have significant things to consider. One way you have to worry about like microgravity killing you in a variety of ways. And then the other way you have to worry about heat, uh, microgravity and, and cold basically killing you. In the other place you have normal gravity and heat. When you back out of it and you're kind of like, well, energy is probably good. Would you rather be in a place where the extra energy could kill you or where there might be so little energy you die? You know what I mean? So it's, it's mm-hmm. an interesting balance. You know, Earth happens to be in the middle where you have neither. <laughs> But if you go closer to the sun or further from the sun, you do get those change in one direction or another. Um, there's a certain argument that for industry and technology, it's better to always better to go to a place with abundant energy. And I do think that the inner solar system is interesting in that regard. If you're going to build out industry, having easy access to high amounts of energy is an advantage. Are there any advantages to the other materials that are on Venus as opposed to Mars as far as what, what industry would take place there? My impression is that Venus has a lot more metals. And it has a lot more carbon, hydrocarbons, and a lot more heat. So presumably you can make plastics, and you can do things that have plastics and metals quite a bit easier. I don't know how much you want to do metal stuff on Venus. It's an interesting question. I could imagine a world where you're much more plastic-heavy. Certainly you do have a lot of metal. I think if you end up wanting, if, you, if you're trying to find a place to get a lot of metal, you might go to Mercury instead. You know, you don't have to worry. You don't, it, doesn't, like, you have, it takes a lot more energy to, to, to refine metal on Mars than it does on Mercury. Mercury is so low gravity, you can start to do the space elevators and slingshots into space a lot more easily than you could on Venus. And in many ways, Venus is an intermediary between like the Elon philosophy and the Bezos philosophy. Uh, like, you know, Elon, I think Elon's kind of like, let's go to Mars. And Bezos is like, let's just live in space. And mm-hmm. Venus is a place that's like, it's a planet still, you know, but it's not maybe as, it's in maybe some ways less inhospitable than Mars. Um, I think that there's a strong argument for the Bezos philosophy, too, which is you need to get metals or water or any really material. You don't need to land on a planet for it through some combination of asteroids and small moons. You really have access to everything you need. And then at that point, you know, why ever land on a planet again? There's a certain group of futurists that say that, like, we shouldn't live on planets. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. they say that the reason why you shouldn't build on planets is because, you know, planets just have a high gravity well. Um, There's a lot of matter on planets. But really, like, you don't really have access to most of the matter on Earth. Most of it is really far underground. You really only have access to the surface. And so you're basically, in order to get access to the surface, which is not necessarily all useful, you have, you, you're putting yourself in this, in this, in this gravity well. And so there's an argument that what you really want is you want to gather resources from all the low gravity. I think what everyone's kind of thinking about is like, if you only have 10,000 people living there, it's not successful. 
So the question is, is like, what does Mars look like if you have a million people? And then what does space look like if there's a million people? And those are both pretty different things in some mm-hmm. ways. I mean, they, they, to be honest, like, they're both going to be completely artificial habitats. Uh, you're not going to terraform Mars uh, that quickly. So, you know, you're probably looking at you know, either a lot of pressurized things on the, on the ground or you have these giant rotating things in space. Mm-hmm. And the giant rotating things in space is uh, in some ways harder than Mars because, you know, the, there's no matter in space intrinsically. You have to, like, get the stuff there to build the thing. You could get a few asteroids and just bring them all into the orbit of the moon or something and then just start mining them around the orbit of the moon. And basically, you kind of have everything in one spot and then you're kind of moving from one asteroid to another. I think there's a, I think there's a really strong argument that like mining asteroids is probably easier. Better way to go, yeah. Because you, you don't have the, mine, the cost yeah. of gravity to, to get things off the planet once you build it. Well, but also like how much matter do you really need to like house a million people in space? Like it's a lot. It's more than you can easily launch off Earth, but it's it's a lot less than a 10 kilometer asteroid. Probably a one kilometer asteroid has more than enough material to build something habitat for a million people. Mm-hmm. Because you know most of the habitat for humans is empty space. If you took Manhattan and you compressed it into a into a cube of metal, it probably wouldn't have that much volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need more material than you can launch from Earth, but not that much material in the scope of an asteroid. So there's this there's this kind of gets to this argument of like okay maybe we should be mining asteroids but then how do you do that at scale and so everything kind of always goes to these like robotic economies mm-hmm. because you don't really want to have people spending a year to get to an asteroid you know to pull it back in a way that takes four years so you kind of end up with sort of a very different thing than the Mars thing you just have a, you just want to have like millions of robots all around different places of the solar systems doing their own things and moving things around and basically kind of doing a whole economy on their own mm-hmm. which is not as crazy as it sounds it's if we can have self-driving cars then can we have a robot that mines something yeah so there's there's a there's a great nasa study on this where they talk it's called um something like affordable bootstrapping of industry across the solar system um Mm -hmm. and so the idea is like if you like how how, what does it take to basically get to the bronze age but in space let's start with the most basic forms of technology and let's just start building up really basic economic elements basically like let's go stone age then bronze age then iron age but it's all in space um and let's try to use as much robotics as possible and try to use as little from earth as possible and there's a general sentiment that like you know at first you're still shipping a lot from earth particularly things like microprocessors you know like like processors solar and things like that but eventually um the nasa study actually says um if you do it right with a hundred years of just building industry in space to build more industry in space. So you're not shipping it back to anyone. You're not necessarily building more stuff out of it. It's just like, okay, let's, let's we just focus on building industry in space that allows us to build more industry in space. You know, in a hundred years, uh, you could do a hundred thousand times the size of Earth's industrial output just entirely in space. Kind of makes me think of Glenoian uh, probes and why we haven't identified them yet in the, the Fermi paradox. So... You had the, the best explanation that I've heard as to why we haven't really spotted anything from autonomous systems that are self-replicating yeah. to, I guess, proliferating those throughout our own galaxy and why we haven't observed that either here or in another galaxy. And that the Fermi paradox is, if, it, Fermi paradox is basically, it, it seems like it should, there should be a lot of aliens, so why don't we see them? If it's so easy to do this stuff, then why? And there presumably should be life, then we should be seeing like aliens everywhere doing tons of stuff all the time. Silicon Valley is all about like exponential growth. I think people don't necessarily right. think about what, the, what, what exponential growth means if you have like robots building more robots, building more robots. If you can do that in the solar system, then in 100 years, 
you know, the exponential growth does take you to 100,000 times the size of Earth's industrial output. And then there's another version of this where von Neumann would talk about these self-replicating machines in the same way, but for sometimes the purpose of space exploration. So if you send one thing to another, if you send a robot to another star and then it mines things around the star to build more robots and then it sends robots to every other star nearby and then those make more robots and robots to send every other star nearby, then even if you're only going 10% of the speed of light, you can you can basically have robots around every star in the galaxy in 2 million years. Then if there's any alien that's been around for 2 million years, we should have self-replicating robots in our solar system already. Maybe we can break down a study uh, and what we are currently doing to see them and then what might be better actually go about doing that. We don't do that much right now. What we do is right. reasonable. Like we look for radio signals. We, uh, I guess we mostly just look for radio signals. I don't, we, we don't have that much that actually looks at it. So there was, um, there was another NASA study. I don't remember the name of this paper, but they were saying like, what would it take for us to actually see one? How big does it have to be? How fast does it have to be going? And the general gist of it is you wouldn't see them. Uh, we don't actually look much. We don't look hard enough for things going through our solar system, and we don't even know where most of the asteroids are that could hit Earth. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, even if something is like a kilometer in size and it's passing through us, if you had a kilometer-sized spaceship moving through our solar system, if it was like painted black, we probably wouldn't see it. If it was like white and near us, we might see it. The only way that we definitely see things is if it like gets within low Earth orbit, and if it enters an orbit around the Earth, low Earth orbit, we have like a radar screen for military purposes that basically, you know, anything that in orbit or on the Earth passes through the radar screens and we, we see it. But even then, if it was stealthed, like any of our any of our military stuff has like stealth abilities, like you just make it shaped like a pyramid or something, you wouldn't see it with the radar either. So it's one of those things. It's like, well, why don't we see them? It's like, well, we, we wouldn't really be we wouldn't really be seeing them unless they were really trying to be seen. There's a lot of different solutions to the Fermi paradox and. I go with the version which says that, like, you wouldn't... We're not very good at detecting them yet. Well, we're not very good at detecting them, and then most things that could get to us would know that if they talked to us, it would, like, kind of destroy us. Uh, like, you know, just sort of... Uh, just, like, culturally... If we, we know that if we talked to aliens that had never seen other aliens, it would freak them out. It doesn't take a lot of imagination. And so there's... Um, and then, we, you know, we have enough examples on Earth of, of cultures destroying other cultures by mere contact. So it's, it's not hard to imagine that it would be bad for us for just to come into contact with something that is much 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 more advanced even to know that there are things that are much more advanced would have would have a lot of effects let alone if they like you know shared with us their space internet the valley actually is very anti-alien uh, which i always find really interesting what do you mean by that uh, like i find the tech industry is like very anti-alien is like you would think that like all the nerds would be really into aliens but the tech industry in general is like very against the idea um, of there being aliens? Yeah, of there even being them. There's a general, I think there's a general desire for there not to be any. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to find a lot of life over the next few decades. It's hard to imagine us. Just we're getting to the point where we're detecting. We have thousands of. We, we know we're, we know about thousands of planets around other stars, and we're mm -hmm. getting closer and closer to being able to like analyze the atmospheric composition of those planets all the way from Earth. And so it, it's not a great leap to imagine us like detecting basically plant type chemistry on planets around other stars within the next few decades we probably could be doing it a lot sooner if we really cared as a civilization but we don't um, and, and but, what are we you know, what are we looking for to do that i was going to have these it's, just, it's a combination of telescopes it's about, you know we have a bunch of different telescopes that finds where the stars are we have another telescope that looks for the stars dimming periodically or wiggling from planets and then we have another set of telescopes that will block out the little light from that star and then just look for little reflections of the light from the planets going around it.
And it's the last one that we can do it. It's just still, we can only do larger planets. We can't do Earth-sized planets yet. We're looking um, for so biomarkers that are maybe in, in the, the, the composition of the atmosphere, yeah. Yeah, although to be honest, like we have biomarkers now in several other, both on Venus and Mars, um, that we've recognized, and we haven't really done a good job following up on those. So Mars has these plumes of methane that are seasonal, and there are only two sources of methane, volcanoes and life. And to our knowledge, there are no active volcanoes on Mars. So the first thing you should do is you should send something to Mars to basically test the isotope of the methane. And the isotope of the methane tells you whether it's volcanic or not. We just haven't done it. And we can't really tell what isotope it is from Earth. But we basically have mapped the methane and we know it's seasonal. We know where it comes from. When Mars is volcanically dead and you see something that can only come from volcanoes or life, it's definitely interesting. And then Venus, we there's another set of chemical reactions we've detected in the atmosphere that suggest some bacterial life or something is in the atmosphere. It's either life or it's some entirely new form of chemistry that we don't understand. Either are really interesting. But the idea that, like, you know, we've already discovered biomarkers around the two closest planets to the Earth. And then there's a significant likelihood that there can be life on some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn in a similar way. Um, but we just don't have the equipment to really test those yet. From our current sample set, we could say the one solar system that we've looked at spectroscopically of the planets that we have, like 30% of them have biosignatures on them. So, I mean, there's a non-trivial chance that when people say that life is, is hard to develop in the universe, like we're not really made of, we're not like humans aren't made of uranium. We're made of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, water, like pretty light common elements. And at this point, there's at least four places in the solar system that have a, some form of life there. Could be six or eight, depending on how you classify it. You know, we've got like Europa and Enceladus and Venus and Mars. Europa is particularly interesting. Most people don't realize that Europa has more liquid water than Earth does. So the idea that there's like moons, that there's moons out there that are like in our solar system that have more, that have more liquid water for, you know, a billion years than Earth has. You know, I, most people don't remember this, but like in the 90s, people literally said that we wouldn't find planets around other stars. Uh, there's a large set of people who said that. And now we have thousands of planets around other stars that we know about and kind of cataloged. And so I think we're going to go from like that stage of like people irrationally saying that like we're not going to find planets to basically having thousands of planets with biosignatures. I mean, it's possible we actually have quite a bit of life in the solar system. Europa could have giant squids or whales, you know. <laughs> it has these giant oceans that have been there for a billion years and, you know, plenty of time to evolve life. And if there were giant whales in the oceans of Europa, we would have absolutely no way to see that right now. Uh, I mean, we could yeah. probably explore that pretty inexpensively, too. It's, it's, not, it's not a crazy matter of cost. It's, it's just a matter no, of going yeah. Europa is a little bit harder than Mars because there's like the ice is several kilometers thick. So you have to burrow through several kilometers of ice to get to the ocean. So that unfortunately makes it a little trickier. You definitely, it's possible that you could just like look at the ice and you'd see like frozen whales. <laughs> you know, it's very possible that you don't need to go to the ocean. Just by like analyzing the ice, you can kind of see like, okay, there's like clearly bacteria and stuff. Um, that's an interesting question. But it's also getting through the ice isn't necessarily that hard. You could just like you send like a nuclear reactor there, and then just it's and it just melts its way through you know through the ice like slowly sinks. It basically, if it's hot, it'll just like sink until it gets to the ocean, which is kind of cool. I think Presumably, there's, there's going to be industry here on Earth that really pushes that forward that can make exploring Europa more, I guess, profitable to do so with deep sea mining and that type of thing. That there is an estimated quadrillion dollars in gold in the oceans. 
and that there are a couple of companies looking at different ways to pick through deep sea vents that, that spit up a lot of metals and materials. It, really developing that tech out could be pretty useful in going to Europa. Hey, it's very possible that just having better like launch vehicles from SpaceX and Blue Origin will let us send stuff to Titan and Europa a lot more cheaply too. Like part of it's just the cost to put things in space right now. Which has been steadily coming down. Yeah, the missions to Saturn and Jupiter are just billions of dollars. After the the cancellation of the the shuttle program, the only way the U.S. was getting payloads to space was with ULA, which is a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed, and the price per payload was $450 million. And 10 years later, uh, SpaceX has brought that down to about $50 million per launch with uh, Falcon 9. Relativity space, they're projecting their cost per launch to be at about $12 million. And It's going to be cheap. So, it's kind of exciting. The next two decades, I think, will basically bring the cost of space to zero. Not like zero, zero, but like to the point where it really is no longer a relevant consideration. So it, the question starts to become, like, as the cost of space goes to zero, like, what are the most, like, what should we do with space? I think that alleviates a lot of the issues that we have here on Earth with climate, uh, population growth, that type of thing. It's interesting, yeah. Well, how much is the population growth issue? Like that, we, I don't know if it's that we don't have enough space on Earth for the people that we have. Like, there's a lot of physical space. You know, if we could do clean power, we had some geoengineering. Yeah, I mean, industry is still dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jeff Bezos would talk about how we like could just move. He had like one speech on space, and it's really interesting. The, the different style between the Jeff Bezos and the Elon ones is, Elons are very sort of like emotionally evocative. And like, it was very emotionally evocative in terms of like, these are the dreams of, these are like our dreams for, this has been our dreams for a very long time. And then they're like, we got to go to Mars. Let's go to Mars. When Bezos does it, it's sort of like, we're going to move all industry to space and Earth will be zoned residential and people will live in giant space habitats. And it doesn't, uh, I think it's from an emotional standpoint, people, it doesn't, hasn't resonated as much. And people maybe because of that don't even, haven't fully absorbed the things that he said even. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, buy that. And I, I think Elon is also really going from the angle of you should care about this because it's a backup drive for Earth, right? It's a, it's a backup for life, which I think is a pretty compelling narrative. I, 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 I pref- if I was going to make my own narrative, which might be harder for people to believe in general, so Elon's narrative is better in a lot of ways, but my narrative is more of like, if you want to move to a civilization that's like beyond material needs, you know, the only way to do that is to is to have a scale of industry that's far beyond what exists on Earth right now. And the only way to do that is to, in a way that doesn't like completely destroy the environment of the Earth, is to go to space. Um, so, you know, when the, in this sort of NASA paper where they talk about having an industry, a robotic industry in space that is 100,000 times the size of Earth's, you know, that really at that point means that like, what if you had 100,000 times more stuff or things cost 100,000 times less? You wouldn't really have an issue anymore for really anything that anybody needs. You know, in Star Trek, there's, there is no money because you don't need it. There's just enough of whatever anybody wants. So why do we need it? Like, why, why would we need money? Like, if you want something, you can just get it. Um, so, like, if we want to get to that kind of Star Trek post-scarcity future, like, industrializing the solar system is a real mathematical, technological thing that we can set a goal for. To which, to me, is actually, like, a bit more inspiring than... To me, is sort of one of those ultimate inspiring things, right? Like a, right. a world, a, like a world without material needs is a pretty appealing to me. And obviously, if somebody wants to make money along the way, obviously, moving to a society beyond material needs will involve material wealth along the way. That's not my motivation. But certainly, if you wanted to have like a purely capitalistic motivation for doing such a thing, somewhere between the you know one x Earth's economy and a hundred thousand x Earth's economy, 
you're probably going to make some money. Right. Uh, the next generation of $100 billion companies, the, the bulk of them will probably be built either in space or other other technologies that kind of support uh, that the general mission. Yeah, I, I guess on the incentives point, economic growth and capitalism drive a lot of the reasons as to why we might want to go to space. But if we do live in this world of total abundance and resources aren't really an issue anymore, what what happens if we don't have a state of competition? There's always competition, I suppose. It's just not necessarily from material goods. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already starting to see this. Like, There's a lot of competition for attention right now. Like attention right. is a resource, and presumably attention will still be finite in that future. So you're gonna, you know, there's a lot of things that could be weird. Um, there's a book called Accelerando where they talk sort of about these sort of far futures. They say that the the only things that have value in these sort of far futures are like matter, information, energy, and compute. And so like even if you have like unlimited matter, you don't necessarily have unlimited matter every you know you don't necessarily have unlimited of all four of those things everywhere so there's still like trade around that stuff like hey i have giant swarms of processors around venus and you've got like matter on this side of the solar system and i have like antimatter like from the sun and there's still going to be trade but it's going to be on these different scales that are unimaginable i think to us now and there'll be competition in that sense and Mm -hmm. i mean there's certainly still competition even scientifically so like even if there's unlimited material goods you know, like if somebody can do something weird like wormholes or fashion light travel or fast light communication, like all of those things also have like massive, you know, effective economic value to them. You know, like if you could say I can communicate between different parts of the solar system instantly, somebody would you, people would start to pay whatever equivalent of currency is by then for that, because that allows you to do things much more easily. So there's, I think there's still things that are valuable outside of like pure material goods. Um, so I don't know if we we don't probably go like fully post capitalist in that sense immediately though there's a real question of like what does capitalism become as you start to have like as people get stranger and ai gets stranger and it's probably hard to figure um a lot of people i think one there's one guy who says like you know capitalism is in some sense all about efficiency and that's fine as long as humor humans are the drivers of efficiency but if humans at any point become like the less efficient entities in society then all of a sudden capitalism has like very little regard and empathy for inefficient outdated things so like capitalism could kind of like take off and leave us behind as humans so there's an argument that at some point like we want to make sure that we update capitalism to like have empathy rather than just a pure drive towards efficiency but that's interesting i think it's probably important conversation at some point yeah it's uh it's probably I don't know what stuff that is in the process, but it's <laughs> getting getting off Earth and uh, I guess figure, figuring out what we do in space is kind of up next. Like we're we don't actually live in a we don't actually maybe it goes to the title of the room like we don't actually live in a in a, in a universe of constraints. We live in a universe of abundance, and it's really hard to actually reach the limits of things if we're really open and creative about the universe around us.